All right, well, grab your Bibles, and we are opening today to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Uh, I have never read The Hobbit, I'm sorry to tell you. I'm probably the only person in this room who hasn't, so I apologize in advance to all of the Hobbit nerds in here uh, who really love it, and I may say some things that are wrong, and I'm not sure if the movie is accurate or not on this, but I've seen the first two movies, and I've seen, you know, the second one is uh, the, the Hobbit, The Desolation of... And then everybody pronounces that dragon's name differently, Smaug, Smog, Smog, whatever. So whatever his name is, the desolation of him. And, uh, and, uh, and there's that one point in the movie where they get to what I believe is Mirkwood Forest, and it's all of the dwarves and Bilbo and Gandalf, and Gandalf rides off, and these guys have to make their way through the forest to get where they're going. That's part of their journey. And they get inside, and it's this tangled forest. It's very confusing. They get kind of dazed, and they're wandering in circles, and they're kind of out of breath, and Bilbo looks up, and he sees the sun peering through the canopy, and so he scurries up a tree. He's like, i got to get to the sun. So he scurries up a tree and peeks his head out above the canopy, breathes in the fresh air. Oh, there it is. Okay. And he looks out, and then and only then does he see where he is and where he's going. He sees kind of the big monuments. There's this lake. There's these different things. Okay, now I know where we're going. Now I know what we're doing. Hebrews is a towering book. Hebrews is a complex book. Um, it can be one that on your first reading, I mean, this writer is a monumental intellect, apparently, and, and it can be confusing for some. And so what I want to do today is I just want to sort of scurry up the tree with you, peek our head above the canopy, and, and get a lay of the land, try to figure out where are we. Where are we going? What is this thing trying to accomplish? And help you get an understanding of sort of the big monuments, the big idea of this book before we dive in and just start dissecting it verse after verse. Like this book's going to take us close to a year. We'll end it right, I think, if Lord willing, uh, right before Easter. Uh, I don't make you any promises, but something like that. Uh, That's the goal right now. Somewhere before Easter, we will finish the book of of Hebrews. And this is an awesome book, and I'm really excited to dive into it with you. But I want to first just sort of get us acclimated, kind of put your feet on the ground and help you understand where we are, where we're going. So let's talk about kind of the big monuments, you know, the lake and the mountain and all those things that, that help you understand what Hebrews is about, okay? And the first rock I want to put in place is simply this. Uh, Who wrote Hebrews? Who wrote it? That is a really important question to ask whenever you come to Scripture and you're studying Scripture. Who wrote it? And the, 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 the short answer, if I could summarize all of the scholarly journals out there that have tried to understand who in the world wrote it and looking at language and trying to unpack it and figure out who wrote it, the answer is, uh, the summary of all that is three words, we don't know. Okay, that's, that's pretty much it. We just don't know. Okay, now, um, there's been a lot of speculation. Um, probably the, the majority opinion is that it was either the Apostle Paul or a man by the name of Apollos, who, who Luke mentions in Luke chapter 18 and 19. And what he tells us in part about this guy Apollos was that he was a Christian. He had come, he was a Greek, probably Christian, uh, came to faith in Christ, and it says he was mighty in the Scriptures. So whoever, and he was very eloquent, 
So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, you can be assured, is mighty in the Scriptures. I mean, this person knows his Old Testament backward and forward um, and, 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 and knows it very, very well. So, so maybe Paul, maybe Apollo, some say it could be Timothy, a very minority, says it might even be Mary. The answer is we don't know. So I think it's best. Uh, a couple of guys named Don Carson and Doug Moo uh, wrote an introduction to uh, the New Testament, and they introduce each book. And here's what they say about the author of Hebrews. They say it is far better to admit our ignorance. We don't know who wrote it. Almost certainly, the first readers did. In all likelihood, the author was a Hellenistic Jew. That means a Greek-speaking, sort of Greek-acclimated Jew who had become a Christian, a second-generation believer. He was steeped in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. That The name of that Bible, we call it the Septuagint. You'll see it abbreviated many times in footnotes as LXX, just the number 70. And and the idea is that 70 scholars sat down, and the legend is that 70 scholars sat down in over 70 days, translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek. So it's called the Septuagint, 70. Um, None of his numerous quotations from the Old Testament depend on the Hebrew Bible. It depends on the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And judging by his excellent vocabulary and Greek style, had enjoyed a good education. That's what we know. That's probably the most legitimate thing we can say about the writer of Hebrews. So who wrote it? We don't know. And, and that's a pretty good summary. Okay. Second question, sort of big rock we want to put in place is what is Hebrews? Now this sounds like a really basic question. When I ask that, I'm saying, what, what kind of literature is this? So, so some of you are like, I'd, I'd like to get better at studying my Bible. I want to suggest to you, this is one of the first things then that you want to know. You want to know what kind of literature you're reading. Now, you do this intuitively. Like, nobody has to tell you to read a newspaper differently than you read a textbook. Nobody has to tell you to read a cookbook differently than you read a novel. Uh, nobody has to tell you to read a legal document differently than you do a book of poetry. You just look at it and you know and you interact with it differently and you think differently and you're watching for different cues. You just do this, whatever language you speak naturally, you do that already. Unfortunately, many people open up their Bibles and just kind of assume it's all the same and it's not. The Bible is filled with different kinds of literature. So like it has law, it has legal documents in it, it has, um, it has poetry. Most of the Psalms and Proverbs are Hebrew poetry. It, it, has, um, uh, it has apocalyptic literature, which means sort of end times. So read Daniel or read Revelation. That's its own genre of literature. Um, it has gospels, which is kind of probably Mark invented even that. It has historical writings like, you know, uh, Judges and Joshua and, and, and First and Second Kings and Chronicles and all that. So we've got all these, and it has letters, letters. And in fact, most of your New Testament is made up of letters, right? Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what are letters? Letters are simply this. They are, they are from a real person to real people in a real place dealing with real issues. 
They're literally letters that somebody sat down and wrote out so that they would be read in a church like this and say, okay, here's what this apostle said. Here's what this leader of the church said, and it's authoritative for us. Uh, So, for example, uh, let me just take one, uh, the book of Galatians, for example. It's a letter from Paul to a church in Galatia. Galatia is in modern-day Turkey. You can find it. Um, There is archaeological digs in that area that will show you where Galatia is, Um, and it's written to real people, these, these people. And what had happened is Paul had gone there. Paul had preached the gospel. They had heard. They had come to faith in Jesus, and then somehow somebody had sort of snuck in, if you will, some false teaching came into the church that basically said this, that in order to be right with God, you had to be circumcised. Everybody's like, yikes, right? So, so in other words, you had to keep all the Old Testament law. That's what made you right with God. And Paul sits down, and this is the only letter where Paul is, he's just flat out, he's flabbergasted and angry. He has nothing good to say. He's like, okay, greetings from Paul, blah, blah, here we go. I cannot believe you guys are so quick to abandon the faith that I taught to you. And he's angry. Because he's saying, look, that's not, that's not how you become a Christian. That is not how you walk with God. Jesus satisfied all the requirements of the law for us. doesn't mean the law has been abolished. We don't look at it as evil. Paul says, no, that's not how you, you cannot be good enough. It is, salvation is a free gift and the spirit comes and lives inside of you and then works through you. That's salvation. You guys have perverted the gospel. So he's a real letter to real people dealing with a real issue. What's Hebrews? Well, If you look at your Bibles, Hebrews, it says, the letter to the Hebrews. It's a letter. It's a letter written to real people in a real place that have real issues. Okay? So, let's talk about those. Who are the people? What's the problem? Well, it's a letter to, it's a big giveaway here, letter to the Hebrews. So, who are they? They're Jewish folk. Okay? They are are, uh, people who are are Jews, maybe even like the author, they're Hellenized Jews. Most scholars believe they're living in Rome. That's the best guess that this is going to the church in Rome. There was a large Jewish population, and they had come to believe that Jesus, the the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament, was fulfilled in this person, Jesus Christ. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They were now what we would call Christians, right? So that's who they are. And so what's the problem? Well, in a word, the problem is they're being persecuted. Like life is not good. They came to faith in Jesus and life didn't get easier for them. It got harder for them, much, much harder. They began to be persecuted, right? Because here's what they were saying. They were saying, we believe that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. And they're saying, no way, he was not. We don't think we have to follow the Old Testament laws in the same way that we did when we were Jews. And so we're now out from under that because of what Christ has satisfied for us. And, and there was this severe pushback. There was this severe persecution. Some had received that pushback with joy. Right? And you'll, you'll find out about that, right? They, they, they actually said, okay, we, we, we embrace the persecution. But there had been this backlash. So look at this. Turn to, learn, turn to chapter 10, and, and let's just hold your finger there, and let's look at verse, um, verse 32. He writes this. So, so he's, okay, I want you to remember, this is what you've been through. 
recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so you became Christians, and what happened to you? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Okay, so this is what happened to you when you came to faith. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see what's happening? Paul, the, the, the writer is saying, you, you have been severely persecuted. Things have not gone well. You've had your property plundered. So it's been taken away from you. Maybe your house is burned. You know, th- your possessions stolen from you. You, you had been publicly humiliated. People stood up and said, I cannot believe that you think that man who died on a Roman cross is actually the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This is ridiculous. And then it got very hostile. And all because of their faith. So, so the writer says these, some of them accepted it with joy. And we're going to find out why. Like some of you, you when it happened to you and you, you felt joy. You were like, okay, this is okay. But others of you, you, you were like, wait a second, I didn't sign up for this. I don't, I don't want this. I thought this Christianity thing would make my life easier. And there was this temptation to compromise and say, I'm, I'm leaving this. I'm, I'm, I'm punting. I'm backing away. So they, they are discouraged. They've gone through it. And this writer wants to pull them aside and say, hey, come on, hang in there. So watch what he does. Let's keep reading in, uh, in chapter 10 and look at, look at, uh, look at verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. I know you've been through it. Don't throw it away. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is that sort of confidence-boosting speech, right? The coach, you come in from halftime, you got your butt kicked. The coach pulls the team together and goes, okay, now guys, I know, that was hard, and that stunk, and we, we just got, you know, taken you know, advantage of, and now, 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 now we got to kind of pull our heads together, and we're not going to shrink back. Now, you don't do that. I know you feel that temptation. I can see it in your eyes. We're not pulling back. So apparently some had pulled back. Right? Some had shrunk back. They'd said, you know what? Nope, others were in danger again of, of compromising. Right? Of, of saying, you know, um, Christianity was supposed to make my life much easier, and it's not doing that, and so I want to I compromise with the culture. See, look, at, if the Bible is in conflict with culture, easiest thing in the world, just change what the Bible says. Just, just shave off the rough edges. Take away the parts you don't like. Make it like, like take away the offense of the gospel. That's how you do it. Because, because look, when Christianity meets culture, the culture pushes back, always. And, and the writer says, some of you receive that pushback with joy. And some of you don't receive it with joy at all. And some of you are about to shrink back. 
Some of you are about to cave to the pressure. Some of you are about to compromise with the culture. And I'm saying don't do that. In fact, there's all kinds of warnings that he's going to give. See, see, what you do, if your Bible runs into conflict with the culture, is you simply make the Bible say what it doesn't say, or you make it not say what it does say. And the pushback will go away. Your problem is solved. We, we, we this week, saw a very real example of this. Matthew Vines just published a very um, a New York Times bestseller immediately um, called God and the Gay Christian, in which he argues, not like we have done, which I've said and I've said publicly and I'll say it again, same-sex attraction is not a sin. That's a temptation. And some of you may deal with that the rest of your life. I believe God can deliver us from all kinds of things. But some of you may, may, um, may struggle with that. But that's not, what, that's not what Matthew Vine says. Matthew Vine says that, that living a homosexual lifestyle is compatible with Scripture. So he says, I hold a very high view of Scripture, and I believe that Scripture teaches that homosexuality and the kind of homosexuality I'm living is not a sin. Now look, I'm just going to tell you, you can listen, go back and listen to the sermon that I preached back in January. Um, he says nothing new that people haven't been saying for hundreds of years to try to argue that out of existence. Uh, all of those arguments have been dealt with. But what's he doing? Look, you're living in a cave if you don't understand this is a massive issue of our time. I've got a culture that looks at us and say, are you joking? Who, who are you that you believe this is actually incompatible with the Bible? Like, like, come on, bring this thing in the 21st century. What are they saying? Change what this clearly says. Because if you do, the problem will disappear, I promise you. You don't have to deal with it at all. Is that what we do? The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't, don't, don't shrink back. Hold on. Never promised you this was going to be a dance among the lilies. This is, this is tough. Hang in there. So, so watch what he does. Open and just look at chapter 2, verse 1. I'm not sure if we have it up on the screen, but li listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. There's all these warnings. You're going to get warning after warning. Listen, when the writer of Hebrews warns you, he's not saying, you know, I'd suggest you not do this. He's telling you, you, you are at eternal risk if you don't heed my warning. So he says, therefore, we must pay closer attention, chapter 2, verse 1, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Go forward to chapter 3 and verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast <clears throat> our confidence and our boasting and our hope. If we hold fast. Chapter 4 and uh, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Chapter 6 and verse 11. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Hang on. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This, this, this truth will anchor you. You won't be shaken. Now go forward to chapter 12 and verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and, then, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. This is, this is his message to us. These people needed to endure. They needed to persevere. They're being persecuted. The culture does not like what they're saying, doesn't like what they're teaching, and, and, and they are living in the middle of a hostile culture. They need endurance. See, it's not easy to be a Christian. You understand this? I know it's hard in America to believe this, but it is not easy to be a Christian. In fact, it might be deadly. Turn, turn with me to, to chapter 11, verse 35. I want to show you something. This is in this section that everybody likes to call in Hebrews the hall of faith, where the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 6 is going to say, without faith is it, imp it is impossible to please God. And then he goes on to say, by faith, by faith Abraham and by faith, Isaac, and by faith, Noah, and by faith, it goes on, by faith, it goes to Samson, he names off all these patriarchs, all these great people in, in the history of, of Christianity. He says, by faith, they all did these things. And then he gets down to verse 35, and it all sounds great. I mean, these are brave, heroic men who, and women who stood up for the gospel and, and, and turned the tide and all this stuff. And then he says this in verse 35, he says, he says, um, women receive back their dead by resurrection. And without skipping a beat, without pausing to say, oh yeah, and also, he just goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, all because they believed in Jesus Christ and had faith in him. I mean, they're suffering. I mean, this is severe, severe persecution. And so this writer sits down and goes, I want to encourage you. I want to help you. I want to give you resources to hold on in the midst of persecution, which I think begs the question, are we being persecuted? Because you know what comes to mind? You think persecution, you think that. You think persecution, you think church bombings, you think physical violence that our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering in North Africa and the Middle East, and it's real. That's what I think of. Like, I think we all fundamentally understand that a boycott of Chick-fil-A and a Duck Dynasty hiatus doesn't rise to the same level, right? People are dying for their faith. So what does Hebrews have to say to us? Like, should we even be studying this, Chris? Because I don't think we're there. Well, let's talk about persecution. 
The word persecution in your Bible most often is the Greek word dioko. Okay, I'm not trying to impress you. I just want you to hear this. Dioko. And all this means, all it means, the basic, if you want to just go pick up a, 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 a Greek lexicon and look at what is the meaning of that word, the basic definition of persecution, that word dioko, is this, to harass someone, especially because of their beliefs. Now, in Scripture, there are times when absolutely it's used to describe murder, it's used to describe beatings, it's used to describe arrest, it's used to describe physical violence, all those kinds of things. But not only like that. In fact, Jesus uses it three times in one section of Matthew chapter 5 that I want to show you. And this is the exact word that he's using. Look at, throw up Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are, there's the word, dioko, persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so, so far, so good. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I'm describing what persecution looks like. Keep going. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, in that manner, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, not all of the prophets were physically beaten or murdered. I was talking about Old Testament prophets now. But every single one of the prophets were reviled, were spoken against. What are you saying? What persecution is? Persecution is when people revile you. Persecution is when people say all kinds of bad things about you. Persecution is when they say you're backwards. Persecution all because you claim to believe in Jesus and follow what the Bible says. That's part of persecution. So look, some people, maybe some of you, the Bible teaches us some will lose their lives because of their faith in Jesus. Some will be tortured. Some will be beaten. People will be thrown in jail in North Korean prisons and beaten and murdered and killed. People will be thrown in jail in Iran. It's going to happen. Okay, so that'll happen to some people. But, but, but all Christians of every time in every place will be persecuted. This is exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. Do you want to live a godly life? You want to follow Jesus? You want to live by his example? You want to do what Scripture says? Will be persecuted. You will be. I mean, it, bank on it, count on it, expect it. You can expect fines. You can expect firings. You can expect defunding. You can expect getting kicked off of college campuses. You can expect that Hollywood is not going to embrace your values. You can expect all kinds of reviling. You can expect that people are going to call you backwards. And listen to me, 
No amount of marketing, no PR campaign for the church will rescue you or me from persecution. None. Nothing is ever going to get it. If I decide I'm going to bank my life on Jesus Christ, I'm going to stake my life and live my life based on the Word of God, I, don't, I could have the best marketing campaign manager in the world, and people are going to say, you are a bigot, you are backward, you are intolerant. I cannot believe in the 21st century you think and believe that crap. They will. See, listen to me. Jesus never, never said that if you'll follow me and keep your head down and you'll drink fair trade coffee and you'll, you know, rake your neighbor's lawn and pursue social justice and wear hemp clothing, whatever. Like, if you'll do that, the world will love you. No, he absolutely didn't say that. He said, no servant is greater than his master. And if the world hated me, it will hate you. So hang on. Hold fast. Don't punt. Don't compromise. I'm not selling you a bill of goods. This is going to happen. Hang in there. Okay, now, how? See, I'm so grateful that the book of Hebrews doesn't just go, well, you got a problem. Hang in there, buddy. It doesn't just tell us the problem. It tells us the solution. What, what would the solution be? Like, you, you, you got a friend, and they're, they're, they're going through major trials and afflictions and maybe persecution and and, and, and reviling and all that kind of stuff. I mean, people are picking on them on Facebook, whatever. What's the answer? What do we do in a culture that is increasingly hostile to us? How do we behave? What's, what's our remedy to try and, 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 and understand this and live in this world? And not, do, do, what, what, there's a lot of things. We, we could retreat completely. Move away, form a commune, become Amish, build a bunker, go underground because, you know, the zombie invasion is happening to us Christians and, and retreat from everything. We could, we could compromise and the problem will go away. Boycott, petition, see how many people we can get elected to office. And we could, there's all kinds of things that we could do. Just keep your head down. Don't say anything. Don't speak up. Just kind of march through life and you'll get through this. The writer of Hebrews doesn't tell you to do any of those things. The writer of Hebrews says this. Here's the solution. Look to Jesus. Fill your mind with Jesus. See the hope of Jesus. Watch Jesus. Understand Jesus. Who he is, what he's done. It's all about Jesus. See, I don't know about you. I need examples in my life. Okay, like I've told you before, I'm the youngest of five children, and so that was a great blessing. Like somehow intuitively, I just grew up realizing, wow, I got four examples to watch. 
When they blow it, okay, I don't want to do that. When they do great, whoa, that's good, I'm going to do that. So I've done this my whole life. It's sort of how I learn. I watch and I listen. I'm, and so, you know, I want to be a better father, and I want to find a good father. I want to be a better husband. I'm going to find a guy who's a really good husband. I want to, I want to be a, 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 a good employer. I want to be a good boss. I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a good leader. I want all these things. Then, then I, I, I look for examples, and the writer of Hebrews sits down and goes, okay, you've got an example. In fact, you have multiple examples. You've got an example of someone who has faced the most intense persecution you could face, and they didn't punt. So maybe you're not going to, through it at that level then you definitely shouldn't punt. I'm going to just give you the extreme example. You watch this guy. Here's a guy who went through it all, and he kept his faith, and he marched through the difficulty, and he did it all and never punted. And of course, that person is Jesus, right? So, so turn with me to, to chapter 12. And listen to how the writer says it. So he's just listed out all these people. And he says, therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there he goes. In one little paragraph, he says, this is it. He goes, Jesus has been there. In fact, this whole cloud of witnesses has been there. And they made it through. And they didn't punt. And they didn't compromise. They didn't give in. They went so far as their own deaths to make it. And you can too. See, now listen, I want to suggest to you that these are the stories we love. We go to movies to watch stories like this. We don't go to movies to see the guy that goes, I'm going to swim up culture. Well, that got difficult. Sorry. We don't go to movies and pay money to see that guy. We pay money to see the guy who goes, I will stand in the face of Nazi Germany, and I will, I will stand against the tide, and I will go after this, this maniac. That's why we love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I will stand against the entire British Empire and our whole economic structure. And I will say loudly and eloquently and clearly, slavery is evil. And that's why we love William Wilberforce. And on and on and on. I will stand up to the mightiest religious institution in the history of the world. And I'll pin 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and I will say, no, 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 we do not come to faith. Faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why we love Martin Luther. And this is why we love Jesus. And this is why we love Hebrews chapter 11. Because people said, I'll stand. I will stand in the face of a culture that does not like what I'm talking about, that does not like. Now, how in the world did Jesus do it? Because look, we can say, I mean, he's the son of God. (laughs) So he stood up. I I get that, Chris. But you know what he does? You know what the writer does? He gets us underneath the surface and says, I'm going to tell you why Jesus could do that. 
What's going on in his heart that lets him stand up in the face of all that's coming against him and that will allow you to stand up in all that's coming against you? He says, number one, he despised. What did he despise? He despised the shame. Now, if I said to you, you're going through a difficult trial right now. You're going through a very painful part of your life. You, you're, you may be going through a period where people are hostile because your family is hostile because you love Jesus and you follow Jesus and, and, and you stand on the word of God. And I hope you're not a, a jerk about that. But here's what I'm saying. Like you just, you just, that's who you are. And it's difficult for you. And if I said to you, how do you feel about that kind of persecution or affliction or the things that are happening in your life? You might say to me, I despise it. And by that, here's what you just said to me. You're basically saying this most likely. I really, 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 really dislike it. That is not what despising means. When it says that Jesus despised the shame, it means he counted it worthless. Not worth my time. It's nothing to me. Now, there are religions that teach us to do that. To sort of count all the the external world, the physical world, just count it as worthless, retreat into yourself, right? And that's where peace and harmony will come from. That's, That's Buddhism. I won't feel the pain around me. That is not what Jesus did. He wasn't an aesthetic, you understand? He he didn't just deny that pain existed and that persecution was real. He didn't sit there and go, no, 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 I'm not facing this. This is not real. I'm I'm getting through it. No. He looked it full on in the face. I just despise you. And you know why I despise you? Because I love something even more, something outside of me, something I've accomplished. And what is it? The writer of Hebrews says, it's the joy set before him. Joy. Isn't that amazing? Joy is dangling out in front of Jesus. And it's so massive, and it's so much bigger than anything, that it absolutely refocuses attention, and he can look and say, because of that, because of this future grace that's being held out for me, I, I, I can look at that shame and all the things that are happening to me and this physical pain that I'm going through, and I can say, this is merely light and momentary affliction compared to the surpassing worth of, of, of what is to come. Because there's, Jesus honestly believed that this life is not all there is. Like, do, do you believe this life is all there is? Now, listen, I bet, I bet 99% of you, if not 99% of our community would say, I believe there's life after the grave. So, so that would be, do you, yeah, I do. But it absolutely has no bearing on how I live my life now. Functionally, I don't believe. Confessionally, I believe. See, because functionally, if the culture starts to push against me, if if persecution or affliction or trials come my way, then then I crumble. And you know why you crumble? Because you don't really believe that there's some greater grace being held out in front of you. 
that would give you the joy to go, I can walk through this. I mean, do you hear what he said in the beginning? Some of you went through this with joy. You had your, you had your property, plundered it, and you accepted it with joy. How in the world? If somebody ransacked my house today because of my faith in Jesus, would I walk away and say, yeah, right on. My house got jacked up. You know, I hope I would. The disciples walked away, clicking their heels, because Christ counted them worthy to be punched and whipped for his name. Can you imagine? What if you could bottle up all the affliction, all the trial, all the persecution, all those things, all the reviling? What if you could bottle all those things up and say, you mean nothing to me. There's something greater. You know what that would mean for you? You know what that would mean for us? We would be totally free. We would be unstoppable. There's a saying in the military, you can't kill me, I'm already dead. What if we said that as Christians? I'm already dead. There is joy set before me. You can sever my head from my shoulders. You can torture me. You can beat me. You can take my property. You can put headlines. You can revile me. You can speak all kinds of things against me. Rejoice and be glad, <laughs> for great is the reward in heaven. That, that's what did it for Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says this. He doesn't say, hey, you see Jesus? You hold on like he did. That's part of it. But look, so some of us might think, oh, no, I can't possibly be like Jesus. That's why we sang that song at the beginning, by grace alone. All these things come by the grace of God alone, by grace alone, by grace alone. You know what we do? We don't, we don't try to be like Jesus. We hold on to Jesus. I'm not saved, and I don't persevere because of the quality of my faith. I am saved and I persevere because of the object of my faith. I hang on to him for dear life. And he'll take me through. See, I think, I, think, I think Hebrews is just a long exposition of what Jesus told us in John 16. Look what he said. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Like some of you are like, where? I, my life is in turmoil. I don't know where I find peace. I, don't, I keep trying different things. I try sex and I try money and I try career and I try all these things to bring peace into my life and my life, my, my heart still feels wound up and my, my life still feels in turmoil. And Jesus is saying, in me you will have peace. That's, that's the only place you're going to find it. Not in a bottle, not in a relationship, in Christ. Because there is going to be shaking ground all around you your whole life. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might. Maybe if you do things wrong, and these, no, you will. It's going to happen. But, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is what Hebrews is doing. It's saying, look at Jesus. Follow Jesus. Fill your mind with Jesus. That's the book of Hebrews. 
And it's gonna tell us that. And it's gonna show us how Jesus is greater than anything, everything, anyone, everyone. You understand? If I say hot and I say tell, you tell me the opposite, you'd say cold. If I say up, you'd say down. If I say back, you'd say forward. If I say right, you'd say left. If I say Jesus, don't you dare say Satan. Jesus is in a category by himself. There is no opposite. He is incomparable. And you need to know that. Because if you'll worship that Jesus, if you'll follow that Jesus, you'll stand. You'll be a rock in the midst of a culture that doesn't want you to stand. Let's pray.